This is Drew Kaiser, and you're listening to Wide Margins, episode 35, To Have and Have Not. This is part two in our series on the life of Jacob, Favored Cheat. And in the last episode, if you listen to it, maybe you remember that we closed with a look at the favoritism that developed in Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac favored Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. That's in Genesis 25, verses 27 and 28. Now, you probably are more familiar with the favoritism of Jacob towards his children, one child in particular, and we'll be talking about that on down the road, but it's interesting to see it in his parents. And the reason for his father's favoritism towards his brother Esau shows that, at the very least, Isaac was a man with very little substance. He loved Esau because Esau put food in his mouth. Why Rebekah loved Jacob more, the text doesn't say. Maybe her reasoning was just as superficial as Isaac's reasoning. Maybe it could be explained by the oracle she received when she was pregnant with twins. We don't know. The text doesn't say. So it's impossible to endorse her preferential treatment towards her younger twin son. But uh, it's clear that, you know, from what follows, that she made a more rational choice than her husband Isaac. Now, this is a more familiar part of the story of Jacob that we're covering today, the part where he sells a bowl of stew to his brother Esau in exchange for the birthright. And the story is recorded in Genesis chapter 25, beginning in verse 29, and it's so short, I'm just going to start out by reading the whole story in its entirety. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The birthright. What is that? The birthright, or the right of the firstborn, was an important system followed by the descendants of Abraham whereby the command of the family or the head of the household was determined following the death of the father. So the firstborn was regarded as the son who would take over leadership of the family. A lot of theories as to why this was so. Uh, partly it was because the firstborn was regarded as the first fruits of his father's strength. Maybe his father's strength was more potent in his first son. That might have been the idea there. And he would receive a double share of the inheritance, and then he would take over the family following his father's death. And that tradition was so entwined in Israel's culture that you'll see it codified in the Law of Moses later on in the book of Deuteronomy. In this story, Esau is barely, but he is the older. He is the birthright. You'll remember the prophecy cited to Rebekah when she was pregnant with twins, that the older shall serve the younger. 
Esau was the older who was to serve the younger, and he had the right of the firstborn. But in this story, he's pictured as vulgar and impulsive. And you don't see, you see it in the English translations, but it comes out even more in the Hebrew. In Hebrew, you don't have a lot of dialects. You don't have any at all, usually. But here, Esau's words are couched in substandard Hebrew. He can't even come up with the word for stew. And instead, he seems to be pointing impatiently at Jacob's pot that he's cooking, saying, literally, here's the way it reads, let me gulp down some of that red red. He, can't even, he doesn't even call it stew. He just says red red, like an animal or something. And uh, <laughs> my son uh, Jackson's sitting by me today, and he's laughing. I don't know if he's laughing out of embarrassment for my impersonation of Esau or if he thinks it's funny. Yeah, it's funny the way Esau said that, right? So uh, he, he, he sounds kind of like an animal, just red red. Give me, give me red red. And the verb that he uses for what he wants to do with the stew, gulp it down, you don't see it anywhere else in the Bible, but in non-inspired sources, other non-biblical sources, it's only used for the feeding of animals. So Esau's playing the part of an animal here. And verse 34 says, After the transaction, he just ate and drank and rose and went his way. No further consideration of how much he had just changed the entire course of his life. Now, Jacob, on the other hand, is cool and calculated, and every word that he speaks seems to be carefully chosen and selected with care. And the point of the whole thing, the reason it's recorded for us, is found in Moses' editorial comment in verse 34. Thus Esau despised, other translations say, spurned his birthright. One commentator said that's the only case of editorial comment that you can find in the book of Genesis. That means it's pretty important. In no other place does Moses pronounce judgment on the deeds of one of the characters of the book of Genesis. Only here, saying that Esau despised his birthright. The comment draws a distinction between Jacob and Esau. Esau followed his animal appetites. If he wanted food, he gulped down food. Price didn't matter, however much, even the birthright, whatever. If he was hungry, he had food. If he wanted women, he would take them as wives, regardless of their religion or their background, where they came from. You'll see that later as he takes two Hittite wives that become a, a thorn in the side and make life bitter for his parents, Isaac and Rebekah. Jacob, on the other hand, was different. He focused on the covenant God made with his grandfather Abraham, and the co and which was repeated to uh, his father Isaac. And when he was contrasted with his brother, he came off as serious, spiritual, even visionary. Every person falls into one of two categories. They are either an Esau or they are a Jacob. They either have or have not. And what they either possess or do not possess is a spiritual dimension to their lives. Esau lacked that. He was unspiritual. He was worldly. He lived under the sun only. 
And Jacob, despite all his flaws, was spiritual, visionary, deep. His life was focused on the invisible realities underlying the temporary world we now inhabit. What do we call Esau's condition? What, what's the name for the problem that he has? There are several names that you could use. You can search throughout the Bible and found, find several ways that this is described. If you go to Hebrews that describes Esau, uh, the writer there uses a moral term calling him unholy or profane in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16. But there are other words that describe this condition in terms of the dimension on which it is concentrated instead of the, the morality of it, as you see in Hebrews. So when you look at those, you can go to 1 Corinthians 2.14 where Paul calls it natural or New American Standard Bible's translation is unspiritual. And also in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul uses the term fleshly and describes this kind of behavior as being merely human. Now, he's not referring specifically to Esau in these passages as was the case in Hebrews, but I think he's talking about the same kind of person. And same goes for the book of James, using similar language in James chapter 3, verse 15, earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Those terms all describe Esau's condition one in which a person lives as if this world is all that there is. And we can call, we'll just call him the natural man. So he is the natural man. That's the best way, I think, because he lives strictly in a natural dimension, in ignorance of spiritual realities. Now, at the heart of the natural man is an unwillingness to be open to spiritual realities. The main thing that separated Esau from Jacob was Esau didn't see life through the lens of the covenant that had been made with Jacob's grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac and now to the two boys. And that's why Esau spurned his birthright. Apart from God, what made Abraham's family special? Esau only accepted what his eyes could see. And this unwillingness is so stubborn that if you go back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul describes it as an inability to perceive spiritual things. And some people have confused this passage to think that Paul was describing a person who had no choice but to live on a strictly a natural plane. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying that the person is so stubbornly fixed to this earth that it is as if he is unable to perceive spiritual things. Here's how it reads in 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the, spiritual, of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he, does not, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So you hear him say he is not able to understand them. I don't think he's saying it's impossible to understand them. What he's saying is he's so stubborn that he will not understand them. And you run into people like this all the time. Have you ever wondered why people never seem to understand your perspective as a person of faith? Maybe you have friends like this, and you don't expect them to think exactly as you do. It'd be nice in conversations with them to hear them say sometimes, 
oh, I, I see where you're coming from, but they don't because they can't. They don't understand what it's like to be a Christian. They live on a whole other dimension. And so your life is foolishness from their perspective. They don't believe in those spiritual realities at all. Earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul had been explaining that the source of his teaching was not scientific. It didn't come from any of the five senses. And it wasn't creative. It didn't come from his imagination. It was supernatural. He says, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 10, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. The Word of God is otherworldly. It was miraculously revealed by inspiration through the Holy Spirit. And it takes a spiritual person to discern that spiritual message from God. And that's why you can't get anywhere with an atheist pointing to the Bible as your proof. You show him the Bible and he's, he's going to say, that's just another book, like all other books. He won't give it the weight that it deserves. And he can't do that until he opens his mind to the idea that there are ultimate realities behind this physical world. Let's look at another passage. Uh, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's go to Matthew chapter 13. And in that passage, Jesus explains the purpose of parables, and he tells his disciples that parables do two things at the same time. They reveal truth and conceal it all at the same time. They reveal truth to those who have a spiritual dimension to their lives and conceal the truth from those who lack that spiritual dimension, the unspiritual people, the natural man. Look at verse 12. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. There was something that his disciples, for example, had that, uh, that others lacked. They had eyes and ears open to Jesus' words. Jesus kept saying over and over again, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So unless you possess that open-mindedness to spiritual things, Jesus' parables were nothing more than stories and boring ones at that. But to the spiritually minded, they were, as we learned in Bible school, earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. That's what Jesus means when he says, he who has ears, let him hear. Those who have the spiritual dimension, let them hear the spiritual truths illustrated by these stories. Those who don't have the ears to hear, they're in the dark. When your life reaches the point of being utterly unspiritual, it, it's worse than just not being able to understand spiritual realities. Your life begins to disintegrate. That's what happened in Corinth. They were fleshly, and their natural outlook was causing their fellowship to unravel. You look at... Um, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, and some were saying, I follow Paul, and others were saying, I follow Apollos, and some were saying, I follow Cephas, and they preferred men they could see over the God whom they could not see. And Paul had to ask him, was I crucified for you? Were you baptized in my name? Paul and Apollos and Cephas were only preachers. They may have proclaimed the cross, but they hadn't been nailed to the cross. And in chapter 3, you see what happens when that natural mindset take, takes over a church. The church at Corinth was full of jealousy and strife, and the Christians were behaving only in a human way, not in the way of God. It starts with rivalry, but it gets worse. Eventually, 
the jealousy and envy creeps inward and it turns into just utter despair. I've talked before about my favorite novel, The Brothers Karamazov by uh, Dostoevsky. It's a story of three brothers who choose very different paths, each of them hoping his way is the way that leads to joy and fulfillment. So just to summarize this really quickly, the first one of the brothers is Ivan. He's the intellectual, and he believes that knowledge is the way to find fulfillment. And then you have Alyosha. He's the Russian Orthodox monk. He believes that love is the path to joy. And then you have Dmitri. Dmitri is sensual. He's like Esau. He follows his appetite wherever it leads. But at some point in the novel, Dmitri realizes his path leads only to utter despair. Events lead to his arrest for a crime he didn't commit, and he starts speaking to his accusers, and he admits that he has a problem being an unspiritual person. Here's a quote from that. Gentlemen, we're all cruel. We're all monsters. We all make men weep and mothers and babes at the breast. But of all, let it be settled here now of all that I am the lowest reptile. I've sworn to amend, and every day I've done the same filthy things. I understand now that such men as I need a blow, a blow of destiny, to catch them as with a noose and bind them by a force from without. Never, never should I have risen of myself, but the thunderbolt has fallen. I accept the torture of accusation and my public shame. I want to suffer and by suffering, I shall be purified. What's going on there? Dimitri discovered the truth the hard way. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we find out the same thing. King Solomon uh, tried to live his life under the sun, and what happened? He fell into despair. In Ecclesiastes 3, 19 and 20, he says, What happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same as one dies so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. For all is vanity, all go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. By the end of Ecclesiastes, Solomon opens his mind to the reality, the spiritual reality, and he finds hope. But not everybody is that fortunate. You probably have heard of Jeffrey Dahmer, Jeffrey Dahmer was a notorious serial killer responsible for the death and mutilation of 17 men and boys between the years of 1978 and 1991. And just before his death in 1994, he was interviewed by Stone Phillips on NBC's Dateline, and his words are a chilling warning about what can potentially happen when you deny the spiritual realm. Here's a quotation from that interview. Dahmer says, If a person doesn't think there is a God to be accountable to, then what's the point of trying to modify your behavior to keep it within acceptable ranges? That's how I thought, anyway. I always, I always believed the theory of evolution is truth, that we all just came from the slime. When we, when we died, that was it. There's nothing. Now, Esau did not degenerate into a serial killer, but he did reach despair. I go back to Hebrews 12:17. He says, "You know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." 
By the time Esau matured to the point of opening his mind to the covenant, it was too late. The blessing had already gone to his brother Jacob. Jacob was a spiritual man. What do we mean by spiritual? That's Spiritual is one of those abstract terms that's hard to define. When it comes to mankind, spiritual does not mean perfect. Uh, Jacob's going to prove that time and time again. He's the favored cheat. Remember, that's the name of this series. Despite, though, the fact that he was flawed, he was spiritual. And that means that he possessed a a receptiveness to spiritual things that could not be found in Esau, his brother. A spiritual person is aware of the underlying realities of this world, the things that you can't detect by the five senses. And the spiritual person is someone who really believes in that. There are a lot of people who think they're spiritual because they live as if that exists, but they're not truly spiritual. They don't really believe it. And a great example of this is in Lee Young Lee's poem from Blossoms, where he speaks of days we live as if death were nowhere in the background. Days we live as if death were nowhere. Not that it's not there, just as if it's not there. That might provide temporary peace from joy to joy to joy, as Lee puts it in his poem, but it doesn't grant the peace that a spiritual life can provide. To the spiritual person, God and heaven are just as real as the ground that he's standing on. And that receptiveness to spiritual things makes all the difference in the world. It sets the course for a person's life. And you can see the results of that perspective even this early in Jacob's story. Look at his demeanor. He's calculated, purposeful, um, calm and collected. He's ready so that when the moment came, he seized upon it. He's probably been thinking about this for a long time before Esau came up and gave him the opportunity. Spiritual mindedness gives you focus. It disciplines you to a life characterized by calm and order. It's the kind of life that James writes about in James chapter 3, where he talks about wisdom from above. He contrasts it with the natural mind that we've already been speaking about, the Esau-type mindset. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, James says, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But then he turns to the spiritual mind and listen to how different this is. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. You could look at those two, the, the two things, the two mindsets contrasted by James and put one next to Esau and the other next to Jacob. You're looking at the difference between the natural man and the spiritual man. A person who is spiritual won't be caught selling his birthright for a bowl of soup. There's an anchor to his life that keeps him grounded. He makes good decisions and associates with friends who add value to his life. He's focused. He's wise. He, he has wisdom. Wisdom is not just about how many facts that you can accumulate in your life, how much knowledge you have. 
Wisdom is more about deciding what's important so that you can cut out all of the distractions and just concentrate on the important things. Uh, the artist Hans Hoffman once said that if you want the necessary to stand out, you have to get rid of the unnecessary. So if you want your life to mean something and you're tired of living in chaos and stress and anxiety all of the time, decide to accept the spiritual uh, realities underlying the world and boldly eliminate anything that interferes with that outlook. That's what Jacob struggled to do and I think eventually found a way to throughout his life. And Esau, too, eventually came over to the spiritual way of looking at things. He was just a little too late to have the destiny that his brother was able to to clutch. Spiritual focus is the key to being able to endure suffering. It's hard to face suffering, but you can face it when you realize that this broken world is not the end all, that there's more beyond, there's, there's something beyond this, that there's meaning underlying the suffering. And the eternal realities are far greater and worth it all. And you see that kind of comparison in Paul, Romans 8.18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that shall be revealed to us. And he says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4.17, This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is the spiritual outlook. It changes your perspective, even in painful trials. Without it, life is a meaningless existence ending in oblivion. So you have in Jacob and Esau two archetypes. You have the natural man who ignores spiritual realities, and then you have the spiritual man who anchors his life to those realities and finds focus and calm and purpose. It's up to us to choose which one we want to be. Do we want Jacob's destiny or Esau's destiny? We've got to make that decision. And if you're on the fence about it, stick with us in this series. As we see the rest of Jacob's life roll out, it'll become very clear which path is best. Stay with us next time on Wide Margins.